0: Hello,
1: and welcome to Suite 212 Extra. I'm your host, Juliet Jakes, and today I'm talking to conceptual artist Yevgeny Fix on the opening of his exhibition Mother Tongue here at Pushkin House in London. Yevgeny Fix was born in Moscow in 1972 and educated in the Soviet Union before he moved to New York in 1994. His work is inspired by the collapse of the Soviet bloc in 1991 and re-examines the Soviet experience in the context of left-wing history. It reacts to amnesia about the USSR in the post-Soviet space in the 21st century, looking to form a proper understanding of the period and its traumas that avoids nostalgia and commodification, uncovering forgotten or repressed histories, and scrutinizes widely accepted historical narratives. He applies the same analytical, conceptual and interventionist tactics to histories of the American left, ignored and suppressed since the McCarthy witch hunts, and to narratives about American-Soviet relations. His projects include Lenin for your library, in which he posted Lenin's text, Imperialism, the highest stage of capitalism to a hundred global corporations as a donation to their libraries, as well as Communist Party USA, a series of portraits of current members of the US Communist Party, painted at the headquarters in New York and the Communist Guide to New York City, a series of photographs of buildings and public spaces connected to the history of the American communist movement. Fix's work has been shown internationally this includes exhibitions in the United States at the Winkleman and Postmasters Galleries, both in New York, Mass Mocha, and the Philadelphia Museum of Art, the Moscow Museum of Modern Art and Marek Wellman Gallery in Moscow, the Sala de Arte Publicos Querios in Mexico City, and the Museo Colegial Berardo in Lisbon. His work has been included in the Biennale of Sydney in 2008. The Moscow Biennale of Contemporary Art in 2011 and the Thessaloniki Biennale of Contemporary Art in 2015. His new exhibition, Mother Tongue, is Fix's first London solo show. It deals with the historical gay slang, argo, used by gay men in the late Soviet period, 1970s and 1980s, presenting it as a complete and distinct language separate from the standard Russian. The exhibition takes the form of installation, recreating the environment of a classroom equipped with a blackboard. Alphabet charts, textbooks, and a language instructional video designed as a formal introduction to the vocabulary and usage of the Argo. There is also a photo series, Moscow, showing Pleshki or cruising sites devoid of people, subverting standard perceptions of the city. Yevgeny, welcome to Suite 212. Thank you so much, Juliet. It's, it's a pleasure to be here with you. It's great to have you. I first heard of your work through Georgi Mamadov, formerly of the School of Theory and Activism in Bishkek, who, of course, will be familiar to regulars as the Suite 212 from our show about art, politics, the Soviet legacy, and the future in Kyrgyzstan. Georgi has kindly written a text to accompany your exhibition, and I just want to read a small portion of it now to introduce the show. Georgie writes in a text called Yevgeny Fix, Don't Tell Me How to Be Gay. Fix remained faithful to this contradictory approach to history, and in his most recent project, Mother Tongue, 2018, which includes an exhibition and the book, Tematizh the Soviet-era slang of homosexual men is presented as a fully-fledged language with complex grammar, diverse vocabulary, and a developed literary canon. Tema, theme, is the most common self-designation of the post-Soviet LGBT communities. It derives from the Russian expression Vitema, which loosely translates into English as in the know. And Tematichesky is the mother tongue of Tema, that is, of those in the know. One spoken language disappears every fortnight, and scientists predict that as many as 7,000 human languages will go extinct by the end of this century. Tematichesky is in this endangered list as well. I have been Vitema for some time, but only a few months ago I had a chance to listen to the spoken Tematichesky for the first time. Two sovetsky, zenshiny, Soviet women, homosexual men who've been in the know since the Soviet times, were explaining to a 20-year-old doshka, daughter, young homosexual, the meaning of the word pleshka. This conversation took place in the Kyrgyz city of Osh, a nationally reputed stronghold of religiosity and conservatism, multi-ethnic, multi-generational, An authentically flamboyant Temer in Osh lived clandestinely, hiding away from police brutality and blackmail in private parties and rare daytime gatherings. The main languages in the local Temer, as well as in the city at large, are Uzbek and Kyrgyz, or a mixture of both, but the local dialect of Tematochewski is also spoken, primarily for the purposes of secrecy. Tematochewski developed as Argo, the secret language of the Soviet homosexuals, in which they could discuss their social and sexual life, without attracting unwanted attention of police and mobsters alike. Despite criminal prosecution of male homosexual sex in the USSR, the older gay men from Osh talk about their Soviet-era temnaya in the no life, with a strong nostalgic sentiment. According to them, two men could publicly hold hands or hug, and not be spotted as homosexuals. While today, they complain, even policemen can address them in Tematichesky, wondering why two men being latchkas bottoms in the local dialect of Tematicheski hang out together as a couple. Today, this reads a sad irony, but probably in 50 years from now, this conversation between the gay men and police will be presented as a historical moment at which Tematicheski, from the mother tongue of queer nation, became a lingua franca of the universe. So that's Georgie Mamadov's introduction to the project. Yevgeny, I wonder if you'd like to talk to me first just
0: about how this project came about Thanks, Juliet. I've been doing work on Soviet LGBT history for ten years or so, and the first project was on the subject was um, the series of photographs, which the series is called Moscow. It's uh, also part of my current exhibition at the Pushkin House. The focus was on geography, uh, gay geography of Moscow of the Soviet era, and then I wanted to explore the language part of it, the spoken queer. Language um, that was spoken on the Pleshka. So, in a way, this uh, project Mother Tongue Radnay Rich is a continuation of exploration of Soviet history that began with the Moscow project. And in terms of the actual specifics how this project on uh, Soviet-era gay speech came about. There was an amazing study done in 1973-1974 by Moscow linguist Vladimir Kozlovsky, who was uh, at that time about in his late 20s, and he was ready to immigrate to the United States, which he did in 1974. And before he left, he approached some gay people, some lesbian people in Moscow and interviewed them and collected words, vocabulary that was used by by the subculture. And Kozlowski was not even gay himself, but he was interested in languages. He was a sociologist and linguist. And so about 75, 80% of the words that are part of my exhibition here come from Kozlowski's study done on the ground in Moscow in 73-74. The vast majority of the uh, vocabulary came from
1: Koslovsky's project of recording. The remaining 20%, where did where did that come from?
0: So the 20% of some words I remembered personally. I also have two correspondents in New York, elderly Russian gay men who came to, from the Soviet Union in the 70s and 80s. So... I checked with them also. Sometimes the words would overlap with Kozlowski's study. Some were, you know, new to. The, I mean, were not included in Kozlowski's work. But I guess I I trust Kozlowski's work more, just because it's such a clear time capsule. So I don't trust so much my own memory of the two gentlemen who have been in, in New York for 30 years. Were you tempted to fictionalize or invent
1: any of the vocabulary, or was it more a matter of making sure this was an authentic
0: historical um, Right. The words are pretty much authentic. I did not invent any of the words. Part of my exhibition, I published a book uh, with the same title, Mother Tongue, Rodная and the book includes literary works, uh, works of poetry, I would say, or conceptual poetry. So I would try to write poetry using Soviet-era slang. So phrasings, a lot of phrasing is my invention. So once I started writing poetry, I would use the real words that were used by people in the 70s and 80s, but then I would put them in, in, in sentences or so mixed in a more imaginative, uh, fictional way. that's a very striking part of the project we'll
1: come on to the poetry in a moment what the book and the exhibition do is invite the audience to initiate themselves into this language obviously in a way that gay men in the soviet period would have to initiate themselves into the language just through picking up signs from people and it would be a gradual process something that was kind of lived and passed around orally rather than put into a book and an exhibition in the way that you've done looking at the exhibition last night and reading the book I was really struck by a lot of the kind of playful and subversive Mm humour of the language. Lots of people at the exhibition were struck by the use of the word Menshevik as slang for sexual minorities. And of course, those familiar with the uh, factions in the run-up to the Russian Revolution of 1917 will know that the Mensheviks were, uh, Menshevik means minority. The Mensheviks were actually the larger group. Numerically, but were they lost the argument to the Bolsheviks minority? So hence Menshevik for sexual minority. Another thing I picked up on that made me laugh was the use of Ho Chi Minh for a public bathroom in Moscow that was um, popular with gay men going cottaging. So the book gives a glossary of the slang, it gives a dictionary, and it gives an explanation of the kind of grammatical structures of of the slang. And there's also a video uh, installation here at Pushkin House showing a woman teaching the slang in much the way that a language would have been taught in a Soviet-era school. Again, for viewers who are familiar with, the, who educated in the Soviet Union like you were, it was quite amusing, so there's quite a lot of humour in the work. I wondered if you would like to read one of the poems in Russian, and then I'll read it in English, and then we can talk about the specific words used in
0: the poem and its construction. I'd like to read the poem, I guess, uh, that links pre-revolutionary and post-revolutionary gay experience in uh, Russian. Here it goes. До 1917 года тетка, королева, институтка, подпольщица. После 1917 года тетка, гражданочка, подпольщица.
1: For listeners who um, don't speak Russian, this translates as Before 1917, auntie, queen, boarding school girl, underground ass. After 1917, auntie citizeness, s. So I wonder if you'd like to maybe explain the language used in that poem, the gender terms and the class terms.
0: So before 1917, so auntie for middle-aged queer person, queen for a middle-class or upper-class gay person. So a lot of these words are, as you said, marked by class. And I guess... uh, Reveal more of an upper class uh, type of gay life or gay circles. But what's interesting is that I'm trying to repeat certain personas as being functional, so functioning also after 1917. For example, undergrounders existed before 1917 and continue to exist after 1917, the illegal homosexual, right? And that it was true before the revolution. It was true after the revolution. So not necessarily a huge change according to this particular poem. I'm, I'm not saying that this is true historically.
1: I mean, one of the things I read around this topic, Dan Healy's book, Homosexual Desire in Revolutionary Russia. And of course, you and I were, were on a panel with Dan to launch the um, exhibition and Pushkin House have recorded this and we will share it with listeners along with, with this show. But Dan Healy is very interesting on what you've just described, some of the continuity, some of the pre-1917 underground queer culture. Uh, He references things like Mikhail Kuzmin's Wings, a novel that was published in, I think, 1906 and is one of the first open discussions of gay male romance and love uh, ever published. Something I found myself thinking about was some of the late 19th century Russian symbolist poets uh, like Dmitry Miroskovsky and his wife, Denaida Hippias. Hippias, in particular, is quite interesting for her very androgynous uh, presentation in her youth. And we'll, we'll send out one or two paintings done of her by late 19th century symbolist artists. And, and I find uh, your exploration of that continuity um, very, very interesting. But something we kind of touched on in our talk with Dan Healy and the academic Sarah Wilson was this sort of concept of cultural nationalist element in the book and in Mamadov's essay there's some reference to the fact that after the uh, collapse of the Soviet bloc in 1991, there was some importing of Anglo-American gay slang, a kind of more sort of queer internationalist language that threatened the existence of this Argo. So was there was there a kind of queer nationalist element to the project?
0: Yes, I think there is definitely an element of queer nationalism to it. Uh, so uh, so I definitely would like to highlight the fact that prior to 1991, there was a sophisticated gay and lesbian culture. Uh, maybe that perhaps even uh, organically connects uh, to pre-revolutionary gay culture, because, you know, people who were active in, uh, let's say, gay circles in the, the 1900s, the 1920s, they were still alive after the war. They were much older. But So the continuity I believe existed, but but it was very fragmented. Uh, there were circles, there were pockets, there were very fragmented in lesbian history. But there was a, c- a culture of, of relative uh, sophistication that existed before '91, and I think the fact that you noticed in the language and the exhibition, the the so- Sovietisms. And very inventive, imaginative, invented words uh, or words that they reused as part of the gay slang uh, tells us that the culture existed. So I would like to try not to forget that fact so, and I don't necessarily see my project as a way of uh, protesting against internationalist gay, gay language or American English or English English borrowings, but I think this culture that is almost extinct, the Soviet era gay culture, I think uh, it should be remembered. Yeah, and the linguistic origins of it are long and complicated,
1: as you say. For listeners who may not be familiar with the history of sexuality and the law in the Soviet Union. To give a very stripped out and simplified summary that the may want to add to, homosexuality was decriminalised in 1919 by Lenin. It was recriminalised in 1934 by Stalin. A lot of gay men were either killed or sent to the gulags. And the gulags themselves became one of the places in which a kind of underground homosexual culture existed uh, amongst both like gay men and lesbians. Indeed, in 1953, when Stalin died, the gulag population stood at nearly two and a half million, a lot of whom were, were homosexual people. And indeed, a pre-existing prison culture sort of underground homosexuality fed into that, that gulag culture. Something that was also important was that after 1953, when the forced labour economy started to be dismantled after Khrushchev's secret speech in 1956, a lot of men who had been convicted of sodomy charges returned to society, but they weren't given amnesties like many of the other prisoners. And indeed, in the 1970s, there was a heightening of repression of gay men. Again, the great film director, Sergei Parajanov was imprisoned for five years in 1974. The Leningrad poet, Gennady Trifonov, was given four years for sodomy in 1976. Uh, international gay periodicals published Trifonov's letter from prison in 1978. And then there was a rise in international solidarity with gay men in the USSR. And there were short-lived projects like the Gay Laboratory in Leningrad in 1983, in which 30 men and women led by an activist called Alexander Zovember got together to discuss the new problem of the AIDS crisis, which was starting to build in the US and the UK and elsewhere in Western Europe and about how they might deal with the ongoing repression of of gay men and gay culture. They were persecuted by the KGB and disbanded in 1984. A lot of the members either emigrated or were otherwise silenced. But Masha Gessen has argued in the late Soviet period, and the late Gorbachev era, there was a consensus that the anti-sodomy laws would go at some point, and a very interesting figure that maybe we can talk about momentarily, Vladislav Mamoshev-Monroe, really interesting kind of drag artist, performance artist, became quite popular on late 80s pirate television programmes. There's some very entertaining Mamoshev-Monroe videos online, particularly his restaging of the affair between John F. Kennedy and Marilyn Monroe. Yevgeny, uh, I wondered if you'd like to talk about Vlad Mamoshev-Monroe at all.
0: I met Vladik, I guess, in the early 90s. We hang out a bit in, uh, in Moscow, which uh, I think uh, after I left for the U.S., uh, he sent me some pictures uh, that he continued taking in, in Moscow, uh, like in mid-90s or so. But I think what's interesting about him, uh, because he was very much a perestroika image, right? He was very much an image of, uh, of uh, new Russia and Sexuality and gender are being discussed or there is some movement, some positive development, some opening up. But at the same time, I think the image of a queer person that he presented was uh, it, it was interesting. It's, it was an image that was a bit of an m- image of an entertainer for the emerging class of liberals or for the maybe post-Soviet bourgeoisie so he was larger than life, he was wonderful, he was a great conversationalist, he was uh, very talented. So in this particular form, I think the post-Soviet bourgeoisie was was ready to accept him. The question of gay rights uh, were not pronounced, were not discussed. No, I mean, the decriminalization
1: of homosexuality in Russia happened in 1993 under the Yeltsin government. You moved to New York, I think, in 1993. Correct. So you, you were in Russia for the decriminalization. So I wonder if you'd like to maybe share any memories of that or talk about to what extent, if at all, the legal change affected the society.
0: Well, I mean, it's very interesting, though. I lived in Russia, as you said, until '94. I was uh, actually unaware that any decriminalization uh, occurred. So I think it was decriminalized. I think it was it summer or was it spring of 93? And I had no idea that it happened. And actually speaking of packets of gay life or fragmented uh, LGBT community at that point, for example, in 1991 in Moscow and Leningrad, the first conference on gay rights occurred in the summer of 91. I had no idea that it was happening, and also, and you know, at that time during that summer, I was taking my entrance exams into the art academy, and I had absolute. I was absolutely unaware that something, uh, something related to gay rights, happening in Moscow at this time. So, uh, so I guess uh, people who are more involved into political organizing or activist work would know, but, but the regular i say Moscow gave us a map, necessarily.
1: Not. Sure, and the obviously the focus of your work since then, or uh, your work on Soviet LGBT culture, has been on excavating the Soviet period more so than looking at what's been happening in the present. But I know you have been doing some of that as well. I want to read a quote you feature on your website in relation to the Moscow photo series that we've talked about. This was from a letter written to Stalin in 1934 around the time of the criminalisation, and it was sent by Harry White, who was a British communist living in Moscow. White wrote to Stalin saying, what is the attitude of bourgeois society to homosexuals? Even if we take into account the differences existing on this score in the legislation of various countries, can we speak of a specifically bourgeois attitude to this question? Yes, we can. Independently of these laws, capitalism is against homosexuality by virtue of its entire class-based tendency. This tendency can be observed throughout the course of history, but it's manifested with a special force now during the period of capitalism's general crisis. And of course, White was writing to Stalin in the knowledge that on the Nazis coming to power in January 1933, one of the first things they did was destroy Magnus Hirschfeld's Institute for Sexual Science in Berlin, that did a lot of pioneering work on gay rights, on sex reassignment surgeries, and on research into gender variants. So that was the kind of background that this letter was written in. But I wonder if you'd like to talk a bit more about Harry White, who he was, and this particular letter.
0: Uh, absolutely. Yes, it's a remarkable story. And um, I included that letter into my Moscow book. I think the first time it was published in Russian. Was in '93, and then the second time it, uh, I believe it came out in my book, in 2012. So the letter is amazing because it was written to Stalin openly by a gay British communist uh, living in Moscow, working for the newspaper Moscow News, and the letter is very, it's very open. Harry White tells Stalin that he was gay, that his a boyfriend was arrested and he was asking for the details of the, that well, what has what happened to to his boyfriend. And it was a letter from a communist to a communist. So he was asking Stalin as a fellow communist to explain to him, a gay communist, Terry White, from a Marxist perspective, uh, what's wrong with uh, being um, a communist homosexual. And, uh, so when I read this letter, I couldn't believe it because, I mean, I couldn't, imagine anyone would would sending a letter of this sort to Khrushchev or to Brezhnev or or even uh, Karbachev later on right so i guess it told me that there must have been a certain level of openness in the party that at that time that such questions could have been uh, still asked right because after the war it was unimaginable to question why homosexual is criminalized. So that, I think that's a remarkable historical document. And I don't think Harry White was simply so naive to ask this question. I think at that point, at least, there was some dialogue was possible in party circles, in the communist milieu, on the issue of sexuality and gender. I think that's very true.
1: In hindsight, obviously, it looks, or it has been kind of presented that Stalin just immediately crushed anything that he came not to light. But of course, these these policy discussions were lived and they were experienced by people in real time. There's an analogous experience with, for example, the writers' congresses in 1934, where the Stalinist position on socialist realism was was arrived at as official government policy. I think one other project I'd like to talk about that you've done that does look at bridging this particularly this sort of 60s, 70s, 80s gay history with people in the present, was a project you did uh, in 2013 called Postcards from the Revolutionary Plashka. And 2013 is a significant year. Um, and firstly, it's the year that Mamashiev Munro died. Secondly, uh, that was a point at which Putin's propaganda laws against LGBT freedom of expression, I think they maybe had already been introduced, but this was certainly a point at which they were really taking hold. And 2013 was a point at which the Putin clampdown on LGBT people was really kicking in. It was also the year in which the copy of the laws was first introduced in Kyrgyzstan, as we discussed on our show with Georgi Mamadov and Mihira Suyokolova. Copies of the laws had also been brought into the Ukrainian parliament and were still live at that point before the Maidan revolution. So there was a sense that like across the former Soviet bloc, An attempt to return to legislated repression. So, in this project, which you did with the Rainbow Association LGBT group in Moscow, uh, you asked contemporary LGBT people to write postcards to Soviet era gay men. That's actually something I've done in the UK, projects where I've written back to my teenage self or written back to transgender people in previous times, sort of wanting to have this idea of intergenerational communications. So, I wonder if you'd like to talk about how the people you work with responded to this this stimulus.
0: I mean, it's it was an important project for me because it, uh, as you said, it connects the Soviet era gay history and uh, what was happening in in uh, 2013 with the introduction of the gay propaganda bill. So, uh, the project actually I curated in march april of 2013 and it was not clear yet if the law will be actually adopted and it's interesting that some messages that contemporary lgbt activists and at this point the participants were actually lgbt activists not just common lgbt people so the activists had very different takes on what's going to happen some messages were very positive, the law will never be adopted, it's, uh, it's not going to pass. Some had very dire, very dark you know, predictions of the future that it's going to you know, get passed and uh, it's going to get worse. So it was interesting time because it, uh, so this project was done, the law was, uh, was not finally accepted yet, right? So it was still um, kind of a, people were in anticipation what's going to happen interesting that you mentioned your project uh, this is, it sounds it sounds amazing and uh, actually at least one people uh, among the participants wrote a message to himself in the past right so to himself 20 years ago and uh, yeah i mean my project was
1: part of a volume called letters to my teenage self written by contemporary feminists and queer activists and i think for lgbt people we are often very aware of ourselves in this discourse of legal repression, organizing against it, social change. And I think you know, you and I, as people on the left, have a conception of history as having to fight the same battles again, being quite cyclical, rather than this narrative of just things just purely getting better. They get better, they get worse. You fight the same battles over and over again. And I think that's um, that's a very interesting element to to that particular work. Just before we we move on to the next section. I want to talk a bit about film as a way of engaging with this history. When I was thinking about projects that I've seen, uh, artworks that engage with Soviet queer histories, the two things that came to mind were work by, um, by artist filmmakers. So one of the things I obviously thought about was the School of Theory and Activism, Bishkek's work, Queer in Space, the Kolontai Communist Archive, which imagined this queer feminist commune in, um, in Bishkek, in the 1970s. Again, we covered that on our episode on Kyrgyzstan, so I won't spend too much time on it here. Uh, Another thing i thought about is the Lithuanian filmmaker and artist, Diamantis Nargoviceus, who has done an awful lot of work with archive footage dealing with the way that Soviet monuments are either destroyed or not destroyed or how they were created in the first place. But he made a feature a sort of a close to feature length film in 2011 called Restricted Sensation dealing with a young gay theatre director in the Lithuanian Soviet Sof- Socialist Republic in the 1970s, looking at the way the sort of post-Stalinist recriminalisation of homosexuality represented a wider oppressive cultural policy. So Narkevičius sort of said that he wasn't really setting out to make an explicit comment on the homophobia of the 70s or on Vladimir Putin's persecution of the LGBT population in the early 2010s. But he was more looking at the distrust and tolerance of what's perceived as foreign to a particular country's culture and attempting to identify the causes of this increasing intolerance. Maybe, so just before we move on, I'd like to talk about your film project, Anatoly, from 2014, dealing with the British spy Guy Burgess, uh, and his Soviet lover. Yes,
0: absolutely. Uh, well, one of my favorite projects, in, in in the sense of connecting history to to the present. Uh, so, so Guy Burgess, um, upper class British uh, a person, a communist who was a was a Soviet spy and came to came to the Soviet Union. I believe it was it uh, fifty one, or I believe it was still before Stalin's death, if I am not mistaken. And so he fled the UK and he stayed in uh, uh, in Moscow for the remainder of his life. He passed away in uh, early 60s, 62, I think, of natural causes. And he had a lover in Moscow. He had a live-in boyfriend in Moscow who was a working class person by the name of Anatoly. And so my project, Anatoly, is focusing on the boyfriend, specifically on the working class Soviet, Person who was gay and who had a British spy, a Soviet British spy boyfriend. Anatoly is a very marginal figure in history. He always figures as a, like a little prop in the historical accounts of Guy, Guy Burgess's life in Moscow. We don't know his last name. We are not sure if this is the real first name, how old he was. Well, apparently he was in the late 20s when he met Burgess. But we don't know very much. So, my project was about trying to re- recreate the life of Anatoly, reimagine it, create a fiction of, of his life, or, and uh, asking contemporary post Soviet LGBTs to try to imagine Anatoly. Who was Anatoly? What was his life? Like, uh, what was his relationship, uh, relationship with Guy Burgess? Uh, How does it work? How did the state see that relationship? The project was basically about seven people on video. Each tells the story of Anatoly in his or her own words. And it's basically a lot of talking heads and each creates a completely different (laughs) portrait of Anatoly. And uh, what's the most interesting is that how the subjectivities of the um, participants define their description, their description Anatoly. So, so, so some make him a KGB agent, right, whose job was to keep an eye on Guy Burgess. And uh, some made him a more kind of romantic person interested in the arts and uh, amateur musician and, and so on. So it's, it's interesting how perceptions of Uh, LGBT history vary, right, from person to person, and uh, since we do not have actually one unified uh, LGBT history. So I'd like
1: to move the conversation on now slightly by looking at something very interesting, I think, about your work, which is the way you've engaged with the flip side to The Soviet standardization of Russia, this kind of Russification program that took place throughout the USSR, again in the Stalinist period and after. As well as looking at gay histories, you've looked a lot at Soviet period Jewish histories and you've linked them together, particularly in your project, Soviet Moscow's Yiddish Gay Dictionary from 2016, which draws on contradictory and some might say, counterintuitive links between these two marginal communities. It's a combination of research, translation, transliteration, and fiction. Um, I wonder if you'd like to talk more about that dictionary project.
0: Yes, absolutely. Yiddish Gay Dictionary. So it's, uh, yes, it was an attempt somehow to link or connect uh, somehow to see uh, side by side uh, the Soviet Jewish history and the Soviet LGBT history. There are some parallels. There are some contradictions. Uh, there is a history of anti-Semitism in the uh, Russian gay milieu. There is a history of homophobia in the, in the Russian Jewish milieu. So it's it's a complex uh, history, but you know both communities are very dear to me and personal to me. Uh, so I felt this project could be uh, could be my kind of take on that kind of relationship. So there is no question that both groups were marginal in the, in the larger Soviet narrative. But of course, there, are, there were very important differences. The state never denied the existence of Jewish community in the, in the Soviet Union. There were still synagogues functioning, um, although it was not very you know, advisable to, to attend you know, Friday services. Or, but there was some physical presence. In Soviet life, for example, Jewish cemeteries. I remember myself, you know, realizing that I was Jewish. You know, only a couple, of, well, once a year when I would visit my my grandparents' graves. But but at least there was some some acknowledgement of of existence, right? You know, cemetery is not a great <laughs> not a great uh, you know acknowledgement of existence, but nevertheless. But of course, gay life was completely non-existent. There was no, there was absolutely zero institutionalization of uh, gay and lesbian life in the Soviet Union. No gay bars, no acknowledged uh, institutions of any kind, offices of some organization, uh, activist organization, nothing of that sort. So in that sense, there uh, there are important differences. But otherness was common to both groups and perceived otherness. And it is quite remarkable then that the only openly gay post-war Russian poet-writer Evgeny Khritonov engages a lot in his writing with Jewish themes, some might say in an anti-Semitic way, but it was definitely on his mind, I guess. Regular listeners to uh,
1: Suite 212 will know that I spent two months in Ukraine in June and July of 2018. And during that time, I made several visits to... Yar, which was the site of one of the earliest and one of the most horrific massacres of a Jewish population in the Soviet Union um, after the start of the German occupation. In fact, my first visit there was with a Kiev Pride tour of LGBT sites in Kiev, because opposite was a psychiatric hospital where a lot of gay people had been sent, the ones who weren't sent to the gulags or killed. And a lot of those people were also killed by the Germans on their entry into Kiev. What was particularly striking is there's an extraordinary monument to the massacre at Babyn Yar, very very striking, made by a Soviet sculptor in 1976, and the the memorial is dedicated to Soviet citizens. Uh, the Soviet policy of remembering the Holocaust was just to recall Soviet citizens who've been killed by the Germans, and they didn't note the specificity of. Jewish people, gay people, uh, Roma people, other minority groups. And, you know, of course, these people were killed by the Nazis specifically for who they were. If you go to Babin now, there's all sorts of uh, other memorials that do denote these, um, these specifics of the massacres. Obviously, it's a very painful subject to talk about. But it was after 1991 that this policy shifted to specifically noting, especially the Jewishness of people, Killed. So I mean, I wonder if that again—that was something that happened as you were coming to adult consciousness—and I wondered if that feeds into your work on Soviet Jewish histories at all.
0: Well, with Soviet Jewish history, yes, it's um, yeah, it's an interesting uh, history. I mean, it's very different uh, in many ways from Soviet, uh, from Jewish history in, in other parts of Eastern Europe or in the West, for sure. Well, the Jewishness was very much part of my upbringing. So all of my grandparents were Ukrainian born and uh, came to Moscow before the war in the 20s and the late 30s. So, so there was definitely a very strong connection to, to historical kind of life in, uh, in Ukraine, Jewish historical life in Ukraine. My grandmother would, every, every day would tell me about her growing up in, in the city of um, Cherkass. in in Ukraine but um, I mean it was a particular uh, childhood so I was definitely fully aware of uh, me being Jewish at the same time I felt uh, relatively accepted as as, as a Russian also Uh, so we definitely uh, I did not have any discussion of the Holocaust when I grew up I knew that my great-grandfather was killed by the Germans that was that's how it was uh, explained my great Grandmother from the other side was also killed by the Germans, but that's how it was described. But it's it's much more in the West. It's in Ukraine, right? Moscow was was never occupied, so I I always felt I never lived among sites of, uh, of of the Holocaust as people in Kiev, of course, lived after the war. So so Holocaust was something that was happening much more to the West, a kind of history in a way. I mean, a lot of your works have dealt with a very interesting part of
1: Soviet Jewish history that I, I knew nothing about, which was the creation of the Jewish autonomous region uh, within the Russian Federation, and particularly the city of Birobidzhan, which was the administrative centre of this, this region, which was located on the um, the Trans-Siberian Railway in the Far East near the border with China. So while it was Quite remote and the climate was quite inhospitable. Obviously, the um, the citizens of Birobidzhan were protected from the Holocaust by their their distance from the, the Western front. But this followed Lenin's nationalities policy, which encouraged each ethnic group in the Soviet Union, the fifteen republics. Uh, to settle in its own territory and develop its own language and culture, which he described as being national in form and socialist in content. So the Jewish autonomous region was established in 1934 with Yiddish as its official language, uh, and it was supposed to become a home for the majority of Soviet Jews. Stalin purged the region's leadership in 1937, and today only 5% of the population are. Are Jewish. You've done some work around the city, including a project called A Gift to Birobidzhan in 2009. So I wonder if you'd like to tell our listeners more about that project and about some of the other works that have come out of it.
0: Sure. Uh, Birobizhan is also an amazing uh, story of Soviet history. All of a sudden, after 2,000 years of living among other people, all of a sudden the Soviet Union decides to to create an area in the far east and call it Jewish Autonomous Region and of course uh, it was part of the soviet union it was totally soviet it was not an independent state but there was this amazing project but you know, it was a very unsuccessful project uh, so it was it was established in 34 then for a couple of years it it sounded very promising but then basically people started to leave initially a lot of people came i think even 2,000 um, foreigners came from the from the United States, from South America, from the West. But then they started leaving soon after. And by the beginning of uh, Second World War, I think most of the foreigners have left. But anyway, and after the war, it was kind of a half-dead project that never really revived after the war. But it was kept going, so even so it exists even now. Uh, there are talks about dismantling it because, as you said, there are very few Jewish people. Now it's even less than 5%, and uh, but the highest percentage, I think, was about 10 or 15, something like that. So it was never even more than 10 or 15% Jewish population. So I was very fascinated with this story, with this uh, story of Birobidzhan. And the first project that I did was called A Give to Birobidzhan. So in 1937, soon after Birobidzhan was established, a group of American artists, American activists collected artworks from American artists in New York and Chicago and other places to gift it to Birobidzhan, to the city of Birobidzhan, to the Soviet Jewish autonomous region as a gift so that there would be a museum established in Buribhijan, an art museum, a great art museum, like like the Metropolitan Museum in New York or something like that. And so 200 works of art, great artists donated work. So the work was exhibited in the US and then shipped to Moscow. It got to Moscow in 37, and then it kind of got lost in a way in Moscow. Some of the works gotten into different Russian art museums, some into private art collections, but never actually gotten to Biryuzhnya. So what I did in 2008, I invited contemporary artists to give me works, contemporary works of art, small works that I could bring to Biryuzhnya and donate it to the city now, and, uh, in, and in so doing, complete the historical gesture from the 30s so i have this collection assembled um, unfortunately it never happened so i couldn't quite bring it and give this gift to birbidjan uh, because i was in touch with the people the person from the local art museum and some cultural activists in birbidjan they uh, they liked the idea but they hated the art they hated the contemporary art that i was going to bring so they they asked me to rethink the collection they asked me how come there are very few artworks specifically dealing with Jewish uh, subject? And of course, when people think about Jewish subject in Russia or Ukraine, they think about the shtetl life, the pre-revolutionary, idyllic life of small ta- Jewish towns in Ukraine. Uh, so that's what, I guess, accept- acceptable Jewish uh, subject for Russian uh, Ukrainian uh, circles. So I decided, well, if uh, if the art is not really liked by the recipients, so let me keep this collection for now. And I asked artists who donated work, can I be a temporary kind of keeper, temporary curator of this collection, and wait until time has change, uh, time changes and uh, maybe it will be received with open arms, right? And people would love this art because it is a great, it is a great art. There is some, very nice artist in, in that collection. So the collection is still at my place, at my uh, my apartment in New York, in boxes, waiting to be received with open arms. But you've done plenty of other work on this
1: autonomous region, on Soviet Jewish culture. More generally, so you did a series of black and white oil paintings, landscapes of the Jewish autonomous region between 2012 and 16, And these were based on stills of landscapes from a Soviet propaganda film called Sikhs of Happiness, made in 1936, which narrates the story of a Jewish family from abroad who settled in Borobudan. And you show the landscapes empty and abstract and juxtaposed with abstract terms like nation, motherhood, statehood. And this is obviously a really interesting alternative history to the obviously much more famous and perhaps much more contested story of the foundation of Israel after the Second World War. Does that parallel or that comparison interest you at all?
0: Uh, sure, I mean uh, definitely the you know, contradictions or you know parallel stories of Birbiden and the uh, State of Israel are definitely present, right? Even even if it's not acknowledged in the subject matter, I know very little of the State of Israel. I've only visited once, so so to me the story of Birbiden is definitely a part of Eastern European and Soviet Jewish history. But uh, I think when people perceive uh, project, my projects in and I guess in the back of their mind, they must think in relation to, to Israel. It's only natural. Two other works of yours I'd like to talk about dealing with, with this history.
1: I'd like to talk about the more recent one first, which is your, um, your exhibition, uh, In Adenia, uh, A City of the Future, which was inspired by a Yiddish-language utopian novella, Uh, by a writer called Kalman Zingman, based in Kharkiv in uh, Ukraine in 1918. Maybe you'd like to talk about that exhibition, how you invited contemporary artists to read the novella and respond to it. A couple of the artists you invited were people we mentioned on our show in Ukraine, Nikita Kadan, Mikola Rydney, both very interesting contemporary Ukrainian artists. Uh, But I wonder if you'd like to tell us more about that project and what came out of it.
0: Um, Yedinia, a city of the future. Uh, so now it's so it's a Yiddish language novella that was written in 1918 in Kharkov by Kalman Zingman, and it's it's quite unique in the history of Yiddish literature because it's a utopian novella. It talks about the future as so it's a futuristic and utopian novella. The writer was imagining Ukraine of the future. And of course, um, as, I, as I mentioned, in the history of Yiddish literature, there is not much futuristic uh, work done. There is some, but not. it's not the main body of Yiddish literature. Yiddish literature engages a lot with social realities of the present, it engages a lot with, the, with, the his, with history and uh, with the past, but uh, this you know, futuristic is not as common. So uh, Kalman Zingman uh, describes U- Ukraine of the future that is multicultural, where you have a a Jewish community, Ukrainian community, Polish community, other communities peacefully coexist in the same city, speaking each other languages. It's also a a very high-tech future, very high-tech city. He talks about uh, skyscrapers and some type of teleportation type of devices for traveling. So, uh, so I found the novella in Yiddish. I commissioned an English translation of it. It's only 40 pages. It's not that long. And once I, I got the English translation, then I, I invited contemporary artists to respond to the novella with contemporary artworks. And, and the artists you mentioned, Nikita Kadan, Nicola Ridney were among the artists um, I invited. But it was an international group. They were... They were Basically, artist, uh, international artist, uh, not all Ukrainian, not all Jewish. So, on. so the exhibition uh, to, uh, was held at the Yermilov Center in Kharkov uh, almost two years ago. It was in June 2017. Uh, speaking of the history of of the, of the Holocaust and uh, Eastern Europe, the grandson of the writer, the Kalman Zingman, is a famous Russian a theater director who lives in Moscow. His name is Kama Ginkas. So he came for the opening of the exhibition from Moscow on the train. So he arrived in Kharkov for the opening. And so he's in his 70s. He works with a, with a cane. But, you know, because of uh, with the, uh, with the Russian-Ukraine military conflict, he had to get a special visa to, to arrive. So the director of the of the art gallery met him at the train station so that he can enter Ukraine properly.
1: Just to talk about one other project you've done on this that particularly interested me, and another project that draws together a couple of narratives that the relationship may not be immediately obvious, uh, was your project Sovietish cosmos, Yiddish cosmos from 2016. Uh, intersecting narratives of the Soviet Jewish experience in the Soviet space program and putting together a narrative of a Soviet Jewish futurism. I wonder if you'd like to talk more about that particular project because I think it's a very interesting work.
0: So so the history of Yiddish culture in the Soviet Union and I guess generally in Eastern Europe, as as, as I mentioned, there is a there is a very strong... A connection to history and uh, and of course the history of the Holocaust is a major theme. Mm, so, but I, I, I was I was trying to to try to think how can how can I think about Soviet Jewish history or Soviet Yiddish history in in different terms? And I looked at the kind of the Jewish story of the Soviet space program and the Jewish story of the uh, f- a futurist a futurist. Uh, kind of cosmic thinking from before the revolution or right after the Russian revolution. And it's an interesting, uh, compelling story. And uh, so the project Yiddish Cosmos is is about bridging the Soviet Jewish narrative, Soviet Yiddish narrative, pre-revolutionary Yiddish narrative in the Russian empire, and the stories of space exploration and, uh, fut- and futurism. So it's very much a project in which there is a, probably... More fiction than most of my project. Most of my projects contain. I'm still in the process of um, working on this project. I showed it twice, but there is still a lot of things that I want to um, to do with the Yiddish cosmos. But, uh, but definitely, I'm interested with this project. I was interesting interested in finding a minor narrative, a minor marginal narrative within the larger uh, Soviet cosmos project or uh, Russian cosmos project, right? And kind of, in a way, it's more, maybe kind of an identity politics type of uh, sub-narrative within the larger kind of more, more total or maybe more totalitarian uh, project of Soviet cosmos or Russian cosmos. Absolutely. And, of course, the the space
1: race is one of the aspects of the Cold War that I think still really captures the popular imagination today for all sorts of reasons and a lot of your work deals with the cold war with american soviet relations and with the treatment of communists in the united states you have done some work on the soviet jewish community by tracing their history through memoirs written by african americans who visited the soviet union so people like langston hughes and paul robeson You've also worked on this project, Song of Russia, made in 2005 to 2007, where you made oil paintings of images from Hollywood films made in 1943 to 1944 on uh, Franklin Roosevelt's orders to help build support for the Soviet Union during World War II after 25 years or so of anti-Soviet propaganda. So I'd like to talk more about the work you've done in American communist history now. Uh, Maybe we can start off by talking, because the title is so striking, talking about your project, Homosexuality as Stalin's atom bomb to destroy America. Uh, can we talk about where that title came from and about the work itself?
0: Uh, so the title came from from an actual publication. The name of the journalist Arthur uh, Guy Matthews. So the title, as you said, super striking because you can't link more clearly homophobia with uh, anti-communism, right, or anti-Sovietism in this sentence and uh, so I was definitely, was very interested in conveying through this project or highlighting through this project to what extent homophobia and anti-communism or anti-Sovietism were in, were connected during the McCarthy era and, and on. But it was also important for me to show this project and to make this project around 2012, I think that's when it was done, and I think I exhibited it in 20. So basically around the same time when the gay propaganda law was uh, introduced in contemporary Russia. And I guess guess what I wanted to show is to what extent uh, searches for for the enemy are uh, so predictable. Of course, at this time, the narrative uh, coming from Russia was that uh, LGBT is some type of foreign interventions. That LGBT is some type of agents of of Western, of of the decadent West that infiltrate uh, uh, the healthy fabric of the Russian society, which which precisely what was uh, what was said in the heartland of the West, right in the United States in 1950s, uh, in relation to American gays and lesbians of that era, right that they are agents of a foreign power that are they somehow being instructed by Stalin to do their dirty work and, de- and destroy the, the, na- the healthy natural fabric of the American society. But I think it was also very important to me to show this story to Ameri- to Americans, right, that, uh, so that uh, people understand that only 50 years ago the, the progressive uh, U.S. was uh, not so progressive. Can just describe the work itself and what form it took? Sure. Um, so the project consisted of uh, prints, large prints, on which you would see Soviet nuclear bomb explosions in the background. So these images of uh, nuclear test explosions were juxtaposed with quotations from American politicians and mainstream media in which they would, in the same quotation you would see, how journalists, American journalists, American politicians would link homosexuals and communists, or well, homosexuals and Russians, or homosexuals and Soviets, to see that it's some type of conspiracy uh, where either homosexuals and communists are one and the same people, or they in somehow in uh, their kind of in solidarity, or they working together to to destroy America. Yeah, I mean,
1: obviously, it's interesting that. You know, these American journalists in the McCarthy period were able to stand up this this argument given that you know actually in the Soviet Union the clampdown on homosexual people was horrendous. I guess that's a kind of product of the Cold War and of the availability of information that they're able to make this narrative stick. But I think for contemporary listeners to this podcast, it might it might be worthwhile to just remember that Western mainstream media are using utterly disingenuous techniques to attack both socialism and minorities is uh, is nothing new. You also did some woodcuts uh, dedicated to Harry Hay from the Mattachine Society. Society. Um, we've talked about Harry Hay on this show before, our episode with Hugh Lemmy um, about queer consciousness raising. So you've also done some work on Harry Hay. But I'd like to talk maybe a bit about some of the work on more contemporary US communism you've done and its links to histories. In 2008, you published a book called The Communist Guide to New York City, which included 76 photos of buildings and spaces connected to the U.S. Communist Party in New York, including the headquarters, residences of important U.S. communists, sites where communist organized strikes and demonstrations took place, courthouses where communist leaders were tried during the uh, the 1950s. You produced some commemorative stamps for the U.S. Communist Party, but you also produced a series of portraits of contemporary Communist Party members in 2006-2007, And you said the fundamental question here is, how can one approach painting a Western communist today? So maybe you'd like to talk about how you answered that question through that work.
0: Yes, um, I'm not sure if I found an answer really. So I was trained as a a painter in uh, the Soviet Union. So I started art school in 87 and uh, basically were in two different art schools, all state, all, all very official. Uh, until I left in '94, and so soviet painting is very dear to me I also I feel all the mediums uh, media that I've been uh, working in I feel most most comfortable in painting specifically in, in soviet style semi-realist uh, representational painting so and once in a while I return to painting in my project so every few years and I was really happy with this idea to paint portraits of American Communists. So I can definitely justify my craft. I understand why I was trained for so long and why I was practicing uh, uh, painting and drawing every day. And and now this is my historical chance to be a Soviet painter, right? But of course, uh, it's a different era. and Now I'm not painting. Soviet communists are painting American communists and not getting paid for it, That's uh, The state, the Russian state, Soviet state, uh, you know, doesn't need these paintings. Uh, so I felt uh, very good about the project. So my answer was really to talk to the person, sit next uh, in front of the person, paint as much as possible from life, being a few feet away, engage in a conversation, establish a relationship. So that was my approach, my take. To talk about a couple of the more conceptual
1: uh, rather than painting works that you've done dealing with communism in the United States, uh, I was struck by two works you've done dealing with the commodification of the Soviet communist legacy in the West. It's often remarked upon that one of the reasons why capitalism is so enduring is because it is able to assimilate almost anything a couple of your projects I'd like to talk about in this regard. Uh, you did a project called "Monitoring Lenin Sales on Amazon.com." I should point out at this point that, as I think a 17 or 18-year-old has hit form college, um, I bought my copy of Imperialism: The Highest Stage of Capitalism uh, on Amazon, uh, along with another, uh, a number of other foundational uh, communist books, including um, Friedrich Engels' Origin of the Family, Private Property, and the State. And I'm sure none of these people would have approved. So you did this this project where you're monitoring monitoring these sales. And you also did a project where you took Lenin's book on imperialism, published in, I think, 1916, one of the texts he wrote, obviously, in the run-up to the October Revolution. Uh, and you did a project called Lenin for your library, where you sent 100 copies of imperialism to various big-name American corporations, such as Gap, Coca-Cola, mm-hmm. IBM... General Electric, Merrill Lynch, Bank of America, Microsoft, Ford, the Walt Disney Company. Uh, And you got 34 letters in return, 14 of which were accepted with thank you letters and 20 of them were rejected. Uh, A lot of these letters are on your website. The one I picked out was the one from McDonald's uh, where they opened the letter to you by saying, thank you for considering McDonald's. We always appreciate hearing from our valued customers. They said they were unable to accept books from outside sources, but concluded by saying, we hope to have the opportunity of serving you sometime soon under the golden arches. So bless them. I hope you went back. (laughs) (laughs) I wondered if you'd like to talk more about that project and the responses you got.
0: Uh, so the, the Lenin for your Library was a total experiment. I got a um, hundred copies, and I think I mailed maybe twenty first and see if I get any responses, and then I mailed more. So it was a total of a uh, hundred copies at the end. And I really didn't know what to expect. Would I get any replies? Would I get an angry letter, you know saying, What type of uh, insult is this you're sending us, uh, Lenin's letter? So, but but it's interesting how you know corporate America works, and so it was. So all companies were based in the U.S. I don't think I sent any any company any any books to uh, abroad. So I really didn't didn't know what to expect. uh, But then I started getting letters, and if it's a rejection letter, I would get my book back. If if it's an acceptance, of course I I would not get any. Any books back, which is great. But then, of course, I, I I did not hear from how many, maybe sixty companies, because I got a total of about thirty five letters. So, so maybe a lot of people who replied to secretaries, let's say, who replied to my gift, maybe they were not, they didn't even know what book this was. Maybe they simply sent it back. So it wasn't clear. So although. There are different voices in those letters. I mean, they're not very personal letters, right? They're very polite, very corporate letters. They don't necessarily reveal a lot of, you know, subjectivity. Whether the the, the corporate employee who received my gift, whether he or she knew what what the book was or had an opinion. But you also ran some Lenin reading sessions with corporate employees. Yes, uh, yes, it was a it was a collaborative project with with. Uh, uh, Olga Kapionkin and uh, Alexandra Lerman. So that was interesting, yes, but I, I think uh, people who would agree to read with us, right, so they were already people um, who were open-minded, right, so people who were definitely open to, to this type of intervention, this type of provocation, I guess. But but, but funny that you mentioned uh, Amazon.com and uh, Buying a book, uh, Lenin book from it. it. It's very funny how. So we had I had a graph, right? It was a graph how sales went up and down, and you could see when, uh, at the beginning of a of a college semester, of university semester, you can see the graph goes up because the students go online and, and purchase books that professors assign, and then and then the, and the graph goes goes down after after the beginning of the semester. Given that obviously a lot of younger
1: people now are participating in politics, particularly in Britain and in the US and are using social media to communicate to each other about socialism and communism and left-wing theory uh, in a way that was impossible even 15 years ago. Are you tempted to run a similar project again.
0: Possibly, possibly. I'm, I'm so bad with social media, I, uh, so, so I have to really engage more with it. Uh, I'm not
1: sure I recommend it.
0: <laughs> <laughs> Just to conclude
1: our conversation, I'd like to talk about a couple of works you've done with regards to memory of the Cold War. Obviously, so much Western ideology since 1991 is based on this triumphalism at the end of the Cold War. But as your works have pointed out, you know, we do not think of monuments to victory of the Cold War or veterans of the Cold War in the same way. And you've done two projects that look at this. You did a portrait series called American Cold War Veterans Association in 2009, and you ran a competition for a Cold War victory monument to be built in the USA in 2012 to 14. So perhaps we could talk about those two those two projects and what the Cold War victory seems to me now, given the collapse of uh, neoliberal capitalism in 2008 and the ongoing failure of that system to recover its triumphalism.
0: There's a project that you mentioned, uh, portraits of uh, American Cold War veterans, actually members of a particular group that uh, is called American Cold War Veterans Association. So that was done in 2009 before the uh, Russian-Ukrainian military a conflict and before a worsening of a political climate and relations between the West and Russia. So it was still about the Cold War that, that ended, right, in, in the 90s, early 90s. Uh, what was interesting to me about painting portraits of American uh, Cold War veterans is that it felt that it's such a marginal group. It was uh, thirty people, fifty people, in the United States who are who were re- ready to uh, acknowledge themselves as the victors in the Cold War. People who who had an emotional, personal, professional uh, connection to to the Cold War, right? And no higher um, higher-up military officer or higher higher-up military official or Politician was a member of this group. It was a very grassroots group of low-ranking American military personnel who felt that they contributed to to the victory, that they are the victors, and they couldn't get any any recognition from the state. They couldn't uh, get an official medal or get some, uh, you know, perks uh, that military, you know, vi- victors of a war should have. So it, to me, it felt almost that the American Cold War veterans are as marginal as American comics, So they felt so absolutely left behind by the mainstream narrative of American uh, society, American history. And of course, now it's quite different, right? But now there is a sense of you know, of a new Cold War or some type of different 21st century type of confrontation so that is very different, right? But I'm not sure what what's happening now mean for the legacy of the historical Cold War that ended in uh, 91. Well, I notice a lot now, of course, a certain type of sort of liberal
1: or centrist who has a lot of nostalgia for the Cold War period, but blames the breakdown of this neoliberal order on Russian interference into Western mm-hmm. Elections, um, you know, obviously with not just with the election of Donald Trump in the United States, but also with the um, Brexit referendum in the UK in 2016. People like journalists like Carol Cabalado and some of our listeners gone in very, very deep uh, on this stuff. Or uh, the former Conservative MP and romantic novelist uh, Louise Mensch who's now in the United States and uh, posts an awful lot about Russian interference into. Um, into American politics and speculated once that Steve Banner would be executed for treason, which as yet hasn't happened. I think that's probably all we've got time for. Um Yevgeny, thanks so much for joining me on the show. Thank you so much, Julian. It's been a pleasure. Listeners, Mother Tongue runs here at Pushkin House for a couple of months. We'll tweet out the details. Uh, I urge you all, if you're in London, to, to come and see the work. Or if you're not in London, the book is available and is also worth reading, including the poems that Evgeny has written in the historical Argo, as well as a guide to the language. That's all we've got time for today. So thanks for listening. Do check out some other episodes on SoundCloud, on queer culture, on uh, Ukraine, on Kyrgyzstan, and uh, we'll be back on Resonance 104.4 FM very soon. Thanks for listening. Take care. Goodbye.